Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day is a children's book written by Judith, we'll say just hard last name. We'll go with Judith V, all right? In 1972, it's 32 pages short. They made a movie about it. There have been more modern renditions of this book. But if you've read this as a child or in elementary school, you know how the story goes. It's about a young boy named Alexander and everything in his life that can go wrong does go wrong. He wakes up with yesterday's gum in his hair. He runs, he slips on his skateboard. He sits at the table for breakfast. All of the siblings have a prize in their cereal, but not Alexander. He's picked on at school when he goes to the dentist after school. He's the only one with a cavity. At dinner time, there's lima beans for dinner, but of course Alexander hates lima beans. Everything in his life goes terribly, and throughout the book, he continues to mention this lament and this refrain, I'm having a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. He even tells his mom that he hopes to move to Australia throughout the book, and his mom cautions him, son, don't move to Australia, because they have bad days over there too. And maybe... Even though this book's written for children, there's something in it for those of us who may be older, because in the end, there are occasions in life when we may feel like we're having a horrible, terrible, no good, very bad day. Everything's going in the opposite direction of good. Maybe we might view our lives from that vantage point as we think about all of the things that sometimes can go wrong and do go wrong. There's always somebody or something to be praying about or praying for. Always seems to be some kind of tragedy or hardship to brace ourselves to accept some financial reversal or something that we didn't see coming ultimately comes so much so that even when things are going good in our lives, we sometimes can rarely enjoy it in its fullness because we're looking around for where is the other shoe going to drop? Where is the letdown? Where is the difficulty and the hardship and failure to come? You know, the Bible is always being honest with us. Jesus says in John 16 and verse 33 in the world, you will have tribulation. Romans 8 and verse 36, Paul says we are led as sheep to be slaughtered. And in face to face interaction and through his inspired pen, Paul often told Christians, we follow Jesus Christ, but that will not allow us to be immune from suffering. First Thessalonians chapter three and verse four. And so there are difficult days. There are hard days and there's hardship, but we don't have to surrender. We don't have to give up and give in. In the book of James, James has been called the Proverbs of the New Testament for its practicality. The book of James is called a manual on Monday through Saturday Christianity and Christian living. James is practical in what he gives us, as Ryan read for us a moment ago. James opens his epistle by telling us who he is and also about how to live for Jesus in the midst of hardship. And I think what we find in James chapter one, verses one through 12 is really a step by step manual that teaches us how to be blessed even in bad times, because the reality is there is no way around hardship and difficulty. But there is a way through it. And that's the best way. And that's the way that God would have us to respond. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn it to James chapter one. James opens in verse one by describing himself this way. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ of the 12 tribes that are scattered among you. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you fall in the trials of various kind, knowing this, that the trying of your faith produces patience or steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lack wisdom. Let him ask of God who gives to all men freely and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering or doubting for the one that doubts is like a wave of the sea driven by the wind and tossed. Let not that person suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double minded man, unstable in all his ways. 
Let the brother of low degree rejoice in his exaltation, but the rich in that he's brought low for as a flower of the grass, he'll pass away. For as the scorching sun rises and withers the grass, the flower falls and his beauty perishes. So the rich man fade away in his pursuits. Blessed is the man who endures temptation or remains steadfast under trial. For when he's tried, he'll receive the crown of life, which God has promised to them that love him. In those 12 verses, James doesn't just tell us that sometimes life doesn't go our way. But James tells Christians, hey, life's going to throw punches at you. And surprisingly, James doesn't tell Christians to duck. He tells us how to take a lick in stride. And as a result, be God's people on the other side and be blessed even in bad times. Let's study together this morning and notice what James says about how we can be blessed even in those times of difficulty. Here's number one. Accept the role of a servant. Now, maybe your Bible is structured this way. Most copies of the Bible in English and James are. You've got James one and verse one, and then there's this huge gap. And then they break into sections two through twelve as if there's this great separation between James introduction and what follows in verses two through twelve. The Greek text knows no such separation. And I think that's purposeful. I think we need to see verse one attached to the rest of what you see in verses two through twelve and not just the way of James introducing the letter until he gets to the meat of his argument. No, verse one is a part of the argument. James starts by calling himself a slave or a bond servant of Jesus Christ. And this is important. Students of the New Testament know that James is also the brother of Jesus, his fleshly sibling, Matthew 13 and verse 55. And though James initially didn't believe, according to John 7 and verse 5, he eventually does. Acts 1 and verse 14 has Mary there and all of the brothers. But look at your Bible again and notice in verse one, James does not describe himself as a servant of God and the brother of Jesus Christ. Instead, James says, I'm the bond servant of Jesus Christ, the slave of Jesus Christ. James introduces himself to his readers as an individual who is, yes, both a servant of God and of Jesus. James wants us to know as we get ready to launch into a section on suffering, that even being Jesus's sibling doesn't allow one to evade hardship and suffering. It doesn't make one immune to difficulty. He's saying, hey, I'm a bond servant. The word James uses here for a servant or slave is doulos, and it means one who is in complete subjection to another. And in this text, James describes himself as being completely subject both to God and to Jesus Christ. And that makes all the difference in the world. Now, biblical slavery and American slavery are separate and different in some ways. But regardless of the culture, slavery has never been a glamorous thing. To refer to yourself as a slave to someone else was never a glamorous thing. And when James says that here about his relationship to Jesus Christ, he's telling us something about the way he expects his life to go. And if we identify as slaves of Jesus, something about the way we should expect our lives to go. Second Timothy two and verse three, Paul says, endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Ephesians three and verse one and in Ephesians four and verse one, Paul calls himself a prisoner of the Lord. When James starts this book by saying I'm a servant, a slave of Jesus Christ, he's hoping that we learn from this, that part of being a servant, part of being a slave means that things do not always go your way. How do we remain blessed even in bad times? It's by accepting the role of a servant and remembering what we signed up for in Jesus Christ. Listen to what Jesus told his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, 24 and 25. A servant is not above his master or the disciple above his teacher. It's enough for the servant to be like his master and the disciple as his teacher. If they call the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more those of his household? Jesus is saying, look, things weren't easy for me. And if you follow after me, things won't be easy for you. Embrace the role of a servant in your life and what that means. 
It does not mean that we always expect the rain to be pouring into our lives. It doesn't mean we always expect things to go unfavorable or difficult for us. But it does mean this. When those times come and they will and maybe you're there right now, what this means for you and what it means for me, accepting the role of a servant is this. We learn to embrace some discomfort and hardship in our lives temporarily so that we can enjoy his presence eternally. Romans 8 and verse 17 says, if we suffer with him, we'll be glorified together. Second Timothy 2, 11 and 12, Paul says, if we die with him, we'll live with him. If we suffer with him, we'll reign with him. And so I'm his servant. And sometimes bad things happen. But we strip suffering of its power and trials of their power to ruin our lives when we realize this is what it means to be a servant of Jesus Christ and to follow behind him. It's going to happen in our lives and we embrace it. We accept it. James also tells you in verse one that he's writing to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad and he sends a greeting. These aren't the literal 12 tribes of ancient Israel. It's his way of referring to Christians that are scattered everywhere throughout the world. Hold your hand in James and go to first Peter. First Peter, right after the book of James is first Peter. Notice how Peter opens up first Peter, chapter one and verse one. Peter uses similar terminology, doesn't he? He calls himself Simon Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the elect exiles or those that are scattered. And Galatia, Pontia, Bithynia, Asia and Cappadocia in that region of Asia Minor. Peter also says, hey, I'm writing to individuals that are exiled, that have been scattered. Accept your role as a servant and as an exile. What does this mean? It means This world's not my home. I'm just passing through that old song by Albert Brumley. Those lyrics ring true. And when we understand that and appreciate that, we can be blessed even in bad times. Hardship doesn't ruin our lives because we realize that this life is the shortest thing we'll ever do in comparison with eternity. And so Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 17, our light momentary affliction works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. But as it stands in the present, I'm a servant. And servants have to suffer sometimes. And we can be blessed in bad times when we realize that we don't develop this sense of entitlement that says, why would these kind of things happen to me? Hey, I've been so good to God that I should only expect good as a result. We say, no, I've been faithful to God and I've done as a servant. What is my duty to do? Luke 17 and verse 10. Jesus says, after you've done all that's commanded of you, you should say we're wicked and unprofitable servants. And we've done that, which is our duty to do. We're not entitled to anything. And we accept whatever fate he gives us in this life. The first thing we need to do to be blessed, even in bad times, is accept the role of a servant. And what that means is being a bond slave of Jesus and following him. If Jesus suffered, we will, too. But that also means if I'm a servant, if I'm his slave, I will be rewarded in direct proportion to whatever my master has. And our master owns everything, a cattle on a thousand hills. Every beast of the forest is his. Psalm 50 and verse 10. And so we endure light affliction. So that we might know eternal glory. Maybe you've heard the phrase before, when life gives you lemons, make what? Lemonade. It was popularized by a name named Elbert Hubbard. He wrote the obituary for this man, Marshall Pinckney, in about 1915. Pinckney was a dwarf actor. And what Hubbard says about him in his obituary is he he was the paradox of life. There was a famous Latin phrase used at the time that said you had to be sound in mind and in body. Hubbard says that wasn't true about Pinckney. He was sound in mind, but not in body. But guess what? He says fate dealt him lemons and he used his life and opened up a lemonade stand as a result. Hardship came his way. He didn't feel sorry for himself. He didn't complain. He didn't say, what was me? He says, this is my fate, my physical stature. And he used it to become a successful actor. James says you're a bond servant of Jesus Christ. Don't let life turn you into a lemon. You're his servant. 
take what's been given to you and embrace it and open up your life as a spiritual lemonade stand. What does Paul say about his hardship in 2 Corinthians 12? In verse 7, I had a thorn in the flesh. I begged God three times to remove it from me. But he says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul gets it. I'm a servant. I'm suffering. He won't remove the thorn. Paul says, therefore, I rejoice and boast all the more gladly in persecutions and distress and hardships for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. You want to be blessed even in bad times. Accept the role of a servant. That doesn't mean life is always going to be terrible, but it means sometimes it is. And we don't allow that to shock us. Here's number two. Adjust your attitude. How to be blessed even in bad times. Have an attitude adjustment. Notice what James says in chapter one and verse two. Count it all joy when you fall into trials of various kind. Adjust your attitude. Now, the New Testament commands Christians to be joyful. And that's not a surprise to you. In places like 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 10, the Bible says we're sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Or 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 16, rejoice always or rejoice evermore. Or you think about passages like Philippians 3 and verse 1, rejoice in the Lord. We're commanded to rejoice and there are some things the Bible tells us to rejoice about that we don't have any problem rejoicing concerning. Rejoice that your sins are forgiven, no problem. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven, absolutely. Rejoice that you have all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ, most assuredly. But to count it all joy in the midst of hardship and difficulty, James 1 and verse 2, that's a challenge. But James says, I want you to do it. Count it all joy when you fall into trials of various kind and be a person that won't allow hardship to ruin your disposition. Because joy, according to God, is a choice and we get to choose whether or not we're going to be joyful. God says, I want you to be people that count it all joy and to choose joy in the midst of difficulty. James uses a word for count that means to really think about it, to consider it, to calculate in your mind. Christianity involves thinking, thinking soberly and righteously and clearly. And what James is saying is when hardships come in your way, don't let your brains fall out. Remember everything you've believed up to this point. Don't surrender thinking in those moments. Consider it a joyful occasion and think about how you can use it to glorify God. Count it all joy. Consider it a time of happiness when difficulties come your way. I don't know if you know this or not, but we were born to smile. You know, doctors call this reflex smiling, but they found that children smile even before they're born, even in the womb. A child can smile. Researchers have found that the average child of any regular age, any normal age, smiles about 400 times a day. Happy adults smile about 50 to 40 times a day. And they say the normal adults about maybe 20 times a day. But we were born to smile. The University of California at Berkeley did a study. They did a 30 year study. They tracked individuals. What they did is they grabbed a yearbook. And they took this yearbook and they studied the pictures in the yearbook. And what they found is the people that smiled the widest in that yearbook are said to have had longer lasting marriages, to be able to deal with their emotional and mental stability a lot better and to affect other people's lives for the good in a far more and in a far longer duration and in a better way. Just merely by looking at the yearbook pictures and noticing the smiles, Wayne State University followed that up in 2010 with a study of their own. They they pulled baseball cards from 1972 and they looked at the players in those pictures that were smiling. And it wasn't about their success in baseball, but they found that the players that smiled the widest live longer lives. 79 years old with the average in comparison to those that didn't smile or had a smaller smile at 72 years old. What does that mean for us? It means if altering your face makes that much of a difference in your life, what would happen if you altered your soul? James says, consider it joy. Choose joy. It's not your natural reflex, but choose it anyway. 
Proverbs 15 and verse 13 says, a merry heart makes a joyful countenance. Somebody has said before about Christians, if you all are so happy, you ought to notify your face. Right. If you really mean it, if you're really excited, it should change you. Proverbs 15 and verse 15, Solomon says that a joyful heart is a continual feast. And here James here saying one of the ways to be blessed, even in bad times, is to have an attitude adjustment where you count it all joy when you fall into trials of various kinds. The word James uses for trials here for various kinds, it's a word that means a lot of different things in the New Testament. Sometimes it's about outward opposition. So trials may come from outside, people trying to do harm to us in our lives, in relationships and other things. That's the way Peter uses the word in 1 Peter 4 and verse 12 when he says, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial, which is the triune. Sometimes the bad times in our lives come from other people. They do things to us that make our lives unpleasant. We're minding our own business. Difficulty comes from without. Sometimes it's about quarrels and strife. James four and verse one, James says that there are quarrels and fights among you. And sometimes it's just the normal stuff of life that everybody faces. What James says is regardless of the trial, whatever it is, when it comes, count it all joy. Everybody in this auditorium doesn't really matter the age. You have a mental file. It's constantly being developed. I don't know when it started for you, but it just happens. And you have mental files based on things that have happened in your life. And when things happen to you, you start placing things in those mental files. There have been things that have happened to you. And as a result, you have a mental file that's called expensive. And when you see something of similar nature, you're like, oh, this is going to be bad. And you put it in the expensive file. There are things that have happened to you that alert you to pain and certain things that happen or you think are going to happen. I'm going to the dentist. You start filing things away in the painful file or the hurtful file or the love file. What James says is no matter what happens, when trials come, you start placing them in the joyful file every single time. Consider it joy. Change your attitude and think about things from a joyful perspective, not because you like hardship and difficulty more on that in a moment, but because you know that hardships can't separate you from God, but instead draw you closer to him. If you change your attitude, maybe it'll change the way you go through those things. Here's number three. James says, if we want to be able to be blessed, even in bad times, remember what trials ultimately accomplish. Verse three, knowing this, that the trying of your faith produces patience, let patience have its perfect work or its full effect that you may be perfect and entire, lacking nothing. You know, people put up with a lot of different things in view of what they hope is the end result. Some people go to the gym, they lift weights, they run, they sweat. Some people enjoy it. Most people don't, but they do it because they want to like the way they look in the future. Some people, they diet and they do various things. They would love to drink soda and eat McDonald's. I'm one of those people. But guess what? They say, no, I want to refrain because I want to guard my body. Some people, they're good. They want to save money. They would like to be able to spend money whenever and on whatever. But they know that there is a sort of financial freedom that comes with frugality and with responsibility. And so they suffer in view of what's going to come in the end. Other students in college, they're thinking, I would like to go out and spend time just hanging out like everybody else. But I've got to pay the price and study so that I can be prepared on test day. They want to see themselves through on the other side in a positive light. And so they undergo what is often not pleasant in the immediate. And James says, when you think about trials, consider it a joyful occasion, knowing this, knowing what trials ultimately accomplish. That's what this is all about. You undergo difficulty because you know what it will produce on the other side. 
Turn your Bible to Romans chapter five for a parallel of this same idea where Paul tells Christians pretty much the same thing James does about how we deal with difficulty. Romans five and verse one, he says we're freely justified with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse two, we have access with him by his grace in the faith in which we stand. And he says, therefore, we glory and rejoice not only in tribulations, but those things produce endurance and that endurance produces character and character produces hope. And that hope doesn't put us to shame because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit that he's given to us down through verse five. What does Paul say exactly what James does in your life? When difficulty comes, start thinking about what is this going to do to me and in me? How am I going to be better when I come out on the other side? It doesn't mean you like the way things work. It doesn't mean you like that difficulties are come or that you sign up. God, pour more of your hardship and difficulty on me. James doesn't even say this comes from God, but he does say God can use it. And the more we know that and we realize that when difficulties come in our lives, we can be blessed when we start thinking about the accomplishments of trials. What can this produce in me? What is God trying to teach me is some of the things we should be asking ourselves. What type of character and development can I undergo based on or can I eventually achieve based on what I'm undergoing in the present? You know, sometimes children are sick. They have a headache. You give them ibuprofen. They go in the room and they come back. They say it's still hurting. The medicine's not working. Or they've got a cough and you give them some cough medicine. They leave. They come back. Say, still not. What do you typically say? Let the medicine do what? Let the medicine work in your what? Work in your system. It takes a little time. Notice James one and verse four. Sometimes people undergo hardship. They say, preacher, I prayed. Hiram, that doesn't work. I read the Bible. I did all this stuff you're saying. And James says, wait a minute. Let the spiritual disciplines work in your system. Verse four. This is how James says it. Let it have its full effect or the old King James says, let it have its perfect work. That is when we start undergoing hardship, don't expect to hit a spiritual switch and say, "Okay, I got the lesson out of that. I'm fully formed just like I should be. Let it have its perfect work. It works in our system. It takes time to do its work. But we know that it is working. Jesus says in patience, you possess your souls or your lives. Luke 21 and verse 19. But one of the ways we gain that patience, one of the ways God teaches us lessons that we can't learn any other way is through trials and difficulty. And we'll be blessed in bad times when we start having a long distance vision. Look past the immediate of hardship and financial reversal. Look past broken relationships or even loss of loved ones. Look past those things and say, "Okay, I'm a servant of God. Hardship comes. What can I learn from this and how can I be better? Jim Corbett was a former heavyweight champion of the world. And somebody once asked him, how do you become a champion? What does it take? Corbett said this. This is how you win. This is how you become a champion. You fight one more round when your feet are so tired that you have to shuffle back to the center of the ring. You fight one more round. When your arms are so tired that you can hardly lift your hands to come on guard, you fight one more round. When your nose is bleeding and your eyes are black and you're so tired that you wish your opponent would crack you one on the jaw. I guess that means knock you out in ancient terminology. He fought a long time ago. He says you fight one more round, remembering that the man who always fights one more round is never whipped. Maybe what God wants you and me to do in trial is just simply fight one more round in the midst of the ugly cry, in the midst of hardship and brokenness, when you can hardly shuffle your feet to get to assemblies like this one. Maybe the accomplishment of trial for us in those moments is, would you just fight one more round? Question, what would you endure? What would you be willing to endure if you saw how it was going to make you look in the future? Listen to Jesus or what's said about him in Hebrews 5, 8 and 9. Though he were a son, yet he learned obedience by what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey him. Jesus begged God in Gethsemane, if there's any other way, get me out of this. Heaven went silent. 
But what actually was happening in that moment is God was placing the crown on the head of his son and it only came through suffering. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. When Jesus was suffering on Calvary, it didn't feel pleasant. It didn't feel good. He didn't have some kind of spiritual flesh that kept him from feeling the pain. But he had long distance vision. And he says, I want to redeem the entire human race. And if suffering is the way that I have to do it, that's the route I'll take. One of the things that will rob us from being blessed in bad times is forgetting what the Christian life is all about. The Christian life is not about worshiping God, being blessed and having everything go our way, always avoiding difficulty and hardship. Neither is it about finding the hardest life and living that way. The Christian life in a nutshell is about one thing, and that is glorifying God and pressing into spiritual maturity. Colossians 1:28. Paul says, I work hard and preach the gospel so that I might present every man mature in Christ. And if maturity is the goal, we welcome everything in our lives that presses us toward that end. Great things, glorious things, joyful things. Yes, but even the unpleasant, because our goal is not to have a thorn free life or problem free life. The goal for the Christian is spiritual maturity. And we say to God, I want the spiritual maturity you've got for me, no matter what price I have to pay to attain it. Here's number four. Ask for wisdom faithfully. James says in verse five, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. I know what we've said up to this point is not natural. It's not for the natural person. Paul says in Romans eight, six through eight, the natural man can't receive the things of God. That means that the person in the flesh says there's nothing joyful about trials. There's nothing that trials are going to accomplish that I welcome or that I desire. And I don't intend to be anybody's bondservant. James, real, James realizes that that's hard. That's difficult. And that the carnal person outside of Jesus Christ won't readily accept and embrace these truths. And so James says what we should do is pray for wisdom. Verse five, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God wisdom about what we need wisdom in every area of our lives. But specifically in James chapter one, we need wisdom for how to deal with hardship and difficulties in our lives. And so James says, if anybody lacks wisdom about how to do what we're saying, James wants us to do here. Start praying to God. Start asking God for wisdom about how to deal with things. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. And notice the next phrase who gives to all men freely and the old King James says he upbraideth not newer translations say he gives without reproach. What does that mean? When hardship comes and it will and you start praying to God, I don't see how you're going to be glorified in this. I don't know why you want me going through this. And you pray to God for wisdom. God doesn't look down on you and me and say, how pathetic are you? You've been a Christian 20 years. You don't know that. God doesn't look at us and say, well, I guess I'll give you wisdom if you're so weak and you need it. I guess I'll dole out some. He upbraids not. He doesn't reproach. God doesn't rebuke you and me for struggling with understanding how this works. He gives freely. James one in verse 17 says every good and every perfect gift comes down from above, from the father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Start praying to God and saying, God, I need your wisdom. I need your help. You know, we talked about this two weeks ago in the Sunday night lesson. One of the things about God is God never lies. God doesn't have to prove anything to us. God always tells the truth. But I love when God says something in the Bible and then he buttresses that with further proof. Notice how James one and verse five ends. It's a powerful promise. Let him ask of wisdom and then notice underline this last phrase and it will be given to him. You've prayed for things before and you're like, I don't know if God answered that or how God answered that. James says this is a prayer that will always be answered and you can bank on it. Let him ask of God and it will be given to him. God will give you wisdom. But there's criteria in how we ask. 
James says, ask in faith, nothing doubting, because if you doubt, you'll leave empty handed. God won't give you anything. You're struggling. You want wisdom for getting through hardship. James says, pray to God for wisdom. He will give it. John 14 and verse 14, Jesus says, ask me for anything in my name and I'll do it. This is the confidence we have in him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. First John five and verse 14. We can boldly come before the throne of grace. Hebrews four and verse 16. And concerning wisdom, God will give it to us. Maybe you've done this with people before when you needed something from them. Maybe your spouse, maybe your children have done this to you. Maybe a boss, somebody you've worked for, you say, now I've got to ask you something. You're probably going to say no, but. Well, if you're going to start that way, if you already know, then you probably shouldn't ask. Listen, James is saying people that approach God like that, they won't get anything. Don't try reverse psychology with God for two reasons. Number one, it's unnecessary. He gives freely. But number two, you'll lose. If you come to God saying, God, I need wisdom, you probably won't give it. It's not a reverse psychology method that's going to make God say, well, I'll show you. God will say, you know what? If you come to me with a double mind, you'll leave with two empty hands. James one and verse eight, the double minded man is unstable in all his ways. Prayer is not a superstitious trick for spiritual people. It's for the faith filled individual who believes that God will do what he says. And you come to God for wisdom and you expect God to always deliver. He will. But you've got to be saying, well, how does God give wisdom? What does that look like? Surely it's not God cutting open my head and pouring it in. It's not. God gives wisdom as we read and study his word. And then providentially, God provides the scenarios in our lives to put into practice what we've studied. James three and verse 13, James says, the righteous man shows his wisdom and the meekness of his good practices and his deeds. Pray to God for wisdom. Ask him faithfully and trust God to ultimately provide. Woe to the person that comes to God praying for something, specifically wisdom here with the backup plan of what we're going to do just in case God doesn't come through. God doesn't answer prayers for people like that. God says, if you've got a plan B, you should probably go with that plan because I'm only for the people who put all of their eggs in my basket. I'm only supplying wisdom for people that realize they can't do anything without me. John 15 and verse five. And we'll be blessed in bad times when we pray to God and we ask him for wisdom faithfully. That means unwavering, not tossed to and fro, but ultimately trusting him to do what only he can. Here's number five. James says we need an awareness of true treasures. You read the book of James and it seems like verses nine through eleven are almost out of place here. James is talking about hardship and trial and praying for wisdom. And then he pivots in verses nine through eleven and he starts talking about rich and poor people. It's not a sin to be rich, but in the book of James, it seems like the rich people in this context were wicked. James two and verse six, James says they oppress and malign the Christians. James five, one through five, James describes them as owing people money who have worked for them and refusing to pay them after they've labored in their fields. And here's where James begins this. James says, let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he's exalted, but the rich in that he's made low. If we want to be blessed, even in bad times, we should remember where our true treasures lie. James lifts this up to say, hey, when difficulties come, don't start putting your hope in material possessions and wealth. That's not going to help you, whether you're rich or poor. Let the brother of low degree, the one that's despised by the world, have the eyes of faith. Second Corinthians five and verse seven and realize he's exalted. But the rich person that trusts in his finances, let him know that he also can be brought low. God can reverse your circumstances in hardship. Beware of trusting in material things. Beware of putting your trust in the things of the world. The ancient world was just like ours in a lot of ways. They often thought that these two ideas were synonymous. Net net worth and self-worth. They thought those two things were synonymous. If you've got a lot of money, that means you're somebody special. We haven't graduated from that idea. And what James is saying is in difficult times, if you start looking around and you start saying, well, I know my life's terrible. I've just lost all my money. 
Well, I know my life's terrible because look at what's going on with my home or the way I live or my job. James says, hey, you're going to be ruined. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he's exalted. Jesus doesn't value us based on what we have or don't have. Our true value is found in being located in a saved relationship with Jesus Christ. Know where your true treasures lie. God provides us with all things richly to enjoy. First Timothy six seventeen. Material blessings do come from God, but beware of falling in love with the blessings of God more than the God who blesses. If we think Christianity is all about having a healthy bank account, a full belly, a good bill of health and a healthy retirement, we've missed it. Plenty of people at the current and in the past have served God with scarce necessities of life, barely getting by. And the Bible calls those individuals blessed and honored and secure and exalted. And James just wants us to remember Remember where your true treasures are. Matthew 6, 33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. James is saying, don't throw your eggs in the wrong basket because every idol has a busy line in times of difficulty. If you put your hope in things of the world, when the bad times come, you won't be blessed. But if you know where your true treasures are, you can say, you know what? No matter what happens to me here, I'm a child of the king. No matter what difficulties come my way, I have spiritual blessings that this world can never touch. That's why Spurgeon was able to say, I've learned to kiss the waves that throw me on the rock of ages. His point was, no matter what happens to me, I'm in a good relationship with God. And that's really all that matters. And hardship attunes our hearts to what the true treasures are. C.S. Lewis said, you know, we can ignore pleasure, but never pain. He said, God speaks to us in pleasure, speaks to our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. His point is not that God causes pain, but he says that pain is God's megaphone to the world. Many people think they're secure until difficult things come in life and they realize, hey, there's nowhere else to turn but God. All the things I trusted in that I thought made me secure, all those things have been stripped. There's nowhere else to turn. Pain and hardship is God's megaphone to the world to remind us of our finite nature and of our need for him ultimately above everything else. Here's the last thing James says we can do to be blessed even in bad times, and that is anticipate the promises of God. It's probably the most important thing. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, or blessed is the man that endures temptation, for when he's tried, he'll receive the crown of life which God has promised to those that love him. James says, just remember the crown that awaits. Remember what God has promised, James 1 and verse 12, and that is the promise of the eternal crown for those that love him. James uses the word Stephanos here, and it was a little wreath that they would wear in the Olympic Games of that world. When they came in first place, they didn't get silver and gold and bronze medals. They have the crown, the Stephanos that they'd wear after they had won. But of course, you could imagine that little wreath would wither. It would wilt away. James says, you're going to receive a Stephanos. You're going to receive a crown that will never fade. It's the crown promised to faithful elders in first Peter five and verse four, the unfading crown of righteousness, which the chief shepherd will give. It's what Paul describes in first Corinthians nine and verse twenty five. He says they run for a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. It's James way of saying to people undergoing a bad time in life. Your trials are not here to stay, but the crown that's coming to you is it will never vanish away. Revelation 3 and verse 21, Jesus says, when I knock those that open to me, my father will come in and sup with them and they will sup with us. The crown will remain. And so in the midst of difficulty, in bad times, anticipate the promises of God. Keep your hopes up as high as you can. Be thinking about heaven and all of the blessings that await. Be thinking about the eternal crown, which God who cannot lie promised before the world began. Titus 1 and verse 2, James says, anticipate that God never lies. He always keeps his word. And the premier promise that he's made to us is eternal life. And don't you want that? Don't you want to receive that? 
Don't let any bad time in this life dull your senses toward that or blur your vision toward that being an ultimate reality. James says, remember what's coming. Sometimes you might feel like you've had a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. But nobody that's a Christian has had a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad life because you don't serve a bad God. The Bible says we serve a good God. You know, you read the Gospels and what we find is the story of Jesus is much like James describes here. There's hardship and suffering, but it ends in exaltation. Maybe somebody doesn't know the story, but Jesus, as the creator, creator of the world, was born into this world. He was rejected by his own. He underwent hardship, persecution and rejection. He was stripped of everything that he owned and died on the cross for the sins of the world. And in that moment, it looked like a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. The sky went dark for three hours. He cried out toward heaven. People at the foot of the cross said he was a deceiver, a blasphemer, a a phony and a fake. That was Friday. Saturday, the world went quiet. And if you were a disciple, you would have thought just what Peter, James and John thought. You would have thought, here we go again. Wickedness, hardship, difficulty. It just always seems to win. And God's side seems to always seem to lose. Maybe one of these days the tables will be reversed. The tables will be turned. And then Sunday morning came and the angel announced to the women and later to the disciples, he is not here, but he's risen. Maybe in your life you're in a Friday night situation, maybe a Saturday where the world's gone quiet. It's difficult. You're praying. Seems like nothing's happening. You're having a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Rest assured. Sunday is coming. It always does. If not in this life, assuredly in the next, because Jesus is not here. He is raised from the dead. And what that means is we'll also be raised and glorified together with him. We can be blessed even in bad times because this world through the worst that it could at heaven. And God took it and made an eternal lemonade stand for us to come to the fountain, drink everlasting life from. Maybe this morning, as was prayed earlier, somebody needs to obey the gospel, believing that Jesus is the son of God. You can do that. Turn from your sins and we'll immerse you into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, just like they did in the first century. You'll become a Christian. It won't make you immune to the difficulties of life. But even when those things come, you still will be blessed because you'll belong to God. If we can pray with you or pray for you, we're going to be led in a song to encourage us. If you need to respond, come now as together we stand and as we sing.